Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. We've now got, if you'd like, um, the opportunity to uh, both hear from briefly from a, a sh small panel, who I'll introduce in a second, and also, if you'd like to have a conversation with David and other, our other panel mem members, we'll do that. Um, so I'll ask the four of them to come down um, and to join me on the stage. and. Uh, I'll introduce them briefly, um, ask them a couple of questions, and then it's over to you. Um, we'll only be going for, uh, we'll finish up certainly uh, around nine-ish, so um, stay with us. I've already introduced um, David Buckland, but let me introduce briefly the, the rest of our panel who are seated here. Karine Lambert, um, to my immediate right, is the Climate and Environment Councillor at the European Delegation to Australia. She holds a postgraduate diploma in European Political Sciences from the College of Europe and an MA in Economics from Sciences Po Paris. Between 2007 and 2010, Caroline was an advisor to the Vice President of the European Commission, and between 2010 and 2014, she worked in the private office of the European Commissioner for Climate Action, Connie Hedegaard. David Caroli is a Professor of Atmospheric Science in the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne. He's been heavily involved in the preparation of a number of the reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and was a review editor of the chapter Australasia in the IPCC fifth assessment report released in 2014. David is also a member of the Climate Change Authority, which provides advice on the Australian, to the Australian government on climate change policies. And Guy Abrahams is co-founder and CEO of ClimArt, the producer of Art and Climate Change 2000, Art plus Climate Equals Change 2015. Guy has been a lawyer before becoming director of Christine Abraham's Gallery, a position he held for 22 years. He's been a board member of Melbourne Art Fair and the National Gallery of Victoria Art Foundation and president of the Australian Commercial Galleries Association. So, after a couple of questions from me, I'll hand over to you for Q&A. And I guess the question I wanted to ask, David, you've obviously seen this film many times before, but I imagine there's always um, an image, an idea, a story that jumps out at you each time you see it. I mean, watching this tonight, is there something, an image, an idea, a story that you'd like to highlight that affected you particularly this time? It was, um it was fascinating because in the way this film, as we said, was made in 2006, so that's, what, nine, eight years ago? So I'm kind of like looking back on the Cape Farewell project, and in a way it was early days. But a lot of the argument or a lot of the debate and a lot of the discussion is still relevant, and I found that quite amazing. Mm -hmm. There's a statement Ian McEwen makes, and it's like, it's a challenge to the world leaders, you know, the, you know, the politicians on the world stage is that they've only actually had to deal with problems in the present. 
you know, a war situation or an economic situation. They've never had to deal with problems in the future. And the amazing thing about climate change is it's a future truth. You know, whatever we do now, the effect will be happening in 20 years' time. And David will, I'm sure, back this up. You know, it's one of the challenges for scientists. They go, we've got a serious problem. We all walk outdoors and think, it's a nice sunny day, where's the problem? But actually, their knowledge says we have a serious problem. It's the most difficult thing to get across. And if you're a politician, it is actually, how do you deal? How do you get to the public and say, we ought to make these laws now because in 20 years' time, you know, the effect's going to be really bad if we don't make these laws. So that kind of comment from Ian McEwan, very early innocence was, you know, I still think incredibly profound. David, um, what... Um building on the same conversation. I mean, are there, is there an idea, an image, a story that you found particularly affecting? And how does that relate to what um, David was just saying about the way in which science gets communicated? Sure. Well, I, I think it's, it's really interesting. I mean, yes, I, I found many of the images extremely powerful. But I think what's important is what that film shows is that climate change isn't something that's 20 or 30 years in the future. It's not something that will only happen then. It's happening now, and it's already affecting the planet in many sensitive regions, including the Arctic. But there are many examples here in Australia where climate change is already affecting hot extremes, like we've had in Australia, like bushfires, like heavy rainfall events. And these are already happening and already affecting climate, not just in Australia, not just in the Arctic, but in many other countries around the world. Sea level rise, that's meaning that floods in Manhattan, floods in Pacific Islands, and it's not just the poor people that we hear are being affected, it's everyone is being affected already. And so I think while it's really important to go to the Arctic and see what's happening, you actually don't have to go very far from Melbourne to see what climate change is causing in terms of impacts already. Hmm. Caroline, can I ask you a similar question? What did you find most um, powerful or affecting? And I'm interested too in, in your experience in working with senior decision makers. Um, what do you think has the greatest impact um, on you know, senior government people, senior business people? Is it the science? Is it stories? Is it a sense of what people might lose? What, what, what do you think has the greatest impact? I found the film extremely uh, powerful. I thought what was very new in it for me was to see people actually at, um, gr struggling with the elements. And we live so much uh, urbanized life nowadays. Uh, throughout the world, there is there, there is little, uh, except for when catastrophes are coming. Otherwise, people are not very in touch with elements, and that that was, I think, extremely interesting to see in the film. Politicians, um, the politicians I've worked with in the European Union, uh, had the trouble with climate, the climate issue, as David said, it's difficult for a politician whose mandate will end in three years' time to tackle the issue, um, because it's gonna, it, it's already hitting us, but uh, it will hit the, our children 
even more than us. So it's, it's really an intergenerational issue, difficult to, to tackle for a politician. However, in the European Union, we had strong cooperation with scientists, not only in the physical science field, but in the economic field. Um, and that has helped a lot of tough decisions to be taken because the engineers and the economists have told us that actually tackling this challenge right now um, is good for, for us. It creates jobs, it creates growth, um, it's bringing new innovation, innovations to the market that can actually uh, make our lives more enjoyable. Uh, so it's not only about uh, saving future generations, it's also about giving new opportunities to us right now. Thank you. And, and Guy, um, this is again an invitation to share you know, what you found most surprising or challenging or interesting in the film, but I'd also be interested in you telling us a bit about you know, how it builds on your sense of the importance of art in this conversation and, and perhaps why you got involved in the whole art and climate conversation to begin with. Yeah, I, th I think watching the film for me is, uh, strangely enough, not so much the art that is produced or that, that is being spoken about, but is the, the personal responses of each of the artists. And I see them um, exhilarated and, and depressed and confused and unsure um, and wishing to do something and really feeling around for how can they best use their talents to come up with a way, uh, a metaphor or some expression of what they're experiencing. And to me, that really speaks to what I think people working in the arts are always trying to do, which is to engage us on a very personal level. And, you know, if we can engage that personal level um, on this issue and on, on these very complex issues, then I think we get a better chance of actually people taking, um, taking action or, or speaking about these issues with other people. And that really is the, the main motivation mm. for, for me for working in, in both these areas, is that I have the experience of the arts, uh, which uh, speaks to a sort of deeper, deeper truth, if you like. Uh, and I think often we're, very, we're, we're scared to allow those sort of emotional responses mm. to to surface and we try and keep things at arm's length. Um, and as Caroline said, when we have those, um, and, and David, when we have those extreme events, you know, we respond. Um, the trick is <laughs> to understand what our emotional responses will be to those events before they happen and to act in time. Mm. And that's the, the way the mm. arts can let us in, I think. Thank you. I'm going to hand over to the audience in one, in, after one more question. I wanted to just ask one more question of David Buckland, and it builds on what Guy just said. I mean, this film is now, what, five or six years since it was made, or since the, and longer since the original um, expedition. I'm wondering about the, in your conversations with the artists involved, you know, whether you can share some of the, the kind of lasting impacts that they, they talk about. Um, are, are there any reflections on, on that that you'd like to share with us? I mean, how they feel about their experience now? Yeah, actually, I mean, I mean it's a bit like me, because I was, as I said I was, at the beginning, I was a happy artist <laughs> making work and <laughs> struggling and having exhibitions. So why the hell did I get engaged in doing this, which has completely wrecked my normal life? 
Um, and at the same time, so it's had a profound effect on me and enormous. And the more I know from the scientists and the more I see around the world, because now I'm connected to the whole climate community, and they're going, oh, my God, you know, how do you still say human or upbeat or you struggle through the dangers that we're facing? So it's profoundly affected me, and I think pretty much there are so many of the artists that we've worked with, and I, the whole time I totaled it up, over 340 artists have now worked with us in this kind of in-depth way. And it's like really had a profound effect on a lot of their, their writing or their music or whatever that's gone down the way. I mean, the other one is the struggle. I mean, Ian McEwen, obviously, I'm going to go back to that. It's the easiest kind of example. But he wrote this book, Solar, and it was published six years down the line. But for three years after he came back from that journey, he kept saying to me, David, I, I want to write about it. I can't find the narrative. I can't find the hook. I can't find the story in this that I can make a whole novel. So for three years, he was struggling, struggling, struggling to find how to turn his experience, which was deeply profound, into a piece of art. And that, you know, you saw him. In the, you know, and there was a strange event with a scientist called John Schellenhuber who had this idea of actually getting all the Nobel scientists together in a room and they'll solve the problem. Well, you know, I don't know how many Nobel scientists... Anyway, Nobel, anyway, these very learned and extraordinarily bright people got together in a room and it was a, kind of a disaster. But I managed to get Ian in on that meeting. Um, <laughs> and Ian which then, is in the book. <laughs> which is so in the book. So Ian Central, he came back to me and said, I found, I found a way into this. And I said, what have you done? What have you, I've just taken one of the characters of these scientists who is, you know, he's a big god. He got a Nobel Prize. And he's got this big career, but he doesn't do any science anymore. And he's kind of like, you know, so this whole character of this central character of this seriously flawed human being who's mas you know, misogynist, really quite nasty person. And what they didn't realize, what a lot of people haven't realized, is it's all metaphor. So he created this character who's a complete metaphor for all of us who are kind of blindly going forward with our own selfish needs and desires and playful and trashing everything in our wake. And in a way, that's a metaphor for all of us, going, come on, we've got to rethink about what, who we are and being selfish. So I think all of those struggles, and oh, I could tell so many stories about other artists, too. God, how do you turn this into a piece of art? And it is about that thing, I mean, I said it, it's about taking this huge global issue abstractly and making it into a human form, human scale. This is my story about me being there or meeting there or, you know, that's what artists do. They turn these big abstract concepts into these very, very human stories. Okay, thank you. Now, can I um, take some questions from the audience? I've got um, two roving mics, one up here and one over here. Uh, and I'll just kind of get a glance. So there's a couple of questions over here. Um, should I go first? You please do. Okay. Uh, Caroline, I'll, I'll address my question to you, because if I heard you correctly, you said uh, tackling climate change uh, is good for growth. Uh, but isn't the growth paradigm in many ways at the crux of the problem? Uh, it's obvious that some people in the world need growth, but perhaps uh, a lot of other people, particularly those of us in the developed world, need degrowth. 
And at Copenhagen, uh, many of the uh, climate activists were saying, uh, not climate change, system change. So, so I direct that to you initially, but I'd like to also direct that issue as to whether we need to grapple with the growth paradigm or ultimately grapple with uh, global capitalism. Do we tweak the system or do we move, move beyond the system? Well, Caroline, do you want to have a first go at that? We are going to be 9 billion people on the planet by 2050. Perhaps a little closer to the microphone. There's going to be 20, there's going to be 9 billion planets by 2050, so there's room for growth because these people are going to have to eat and use energy and uh, everything else. Um, it's about, in the European Union, it's about what kind of growth, so that we're discussing the growth concept, uh, but not growth in itself because with more people on Earth, there will be a need for growth in the future. However, we think we can have, and we show that uh, it is possible to grow an economy without growing emissions. Uh, since um, uh, 1990, we've grown the EU economy by 45%, and we've reduced our emissions by 19%. So we've decoupled. Um, how have we done it? We have changed our energy sourcing. We have uh, used energy more efficiently. And these are things that can be done uh, with technologies that are already available right now by, by other uh, parts of the world. Um, in, I hear your um, concern about um, not necessarily striving for growth. It's all about the design. For, let's take the products. What we're trying to do at the moment in the European Union is design products that will be working longer, that are designed from the original stage to be um, reused. And that's also a new um, technological know-how and design that's creating jobs at the moment in the EU. So when you design a TV, you make it easy to uh, dismantle and with parts already reusable to make another TV. So it's, a, it's changing the way that you produce goods uh, to make it easier for the consumer to live a sustainable life. David Buckland, I mean, there's a moment, I think it's Ian McEwen holds up the bottle of red wine there at some point, uh, I mean, and talks about, um, you know, the, the party that uh, at least the, the wealthier um, members of the world have had in the last hundred years. I mean, was that a part of the conversation uh, on the boat? It's a big, I mean, your question's a good one, and I'm probably going to disagree with Caroline quite fundamentally. Um, I, I mean, the, she was talking about the circular economy, which actually is a very, very interesting way that you can actually, you know, instead of building a fridge that you trash, you build a fridge that actually carries on being a fridge. It just transforms itself. You know, there is a, a very different way of thinking about capitalism as such. I do think we need fundamental guide rules that actually decouple capitalism from greed. I think it's quite a useful tool in the marketplace, but actually I don't want my education, I don't want my health service run by capitalism. I think there are much better ways of an economy dealing with those very fundamental needs in society. So I think society will change. I mean, I think we should put a huge price on carbon. I mean, at least $200, so that we pay for our ways. 
So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, the world will look very different in about 30 years' time, and actually we'll probably have a zero growth. Okay, I've got a question down here. Uh, good evening, my name's Lane. Um, uh, thank you very much, David, for a wonderful film, and it's, it's great the way you expect that it lives on through the, through the people that were there. I suppose the thing that, um, that, it, that sort of struck me about it was the, it seemed that the artists were prepared to experiment. They were prepared to um, sort of jump into the unknown and not, not scared to fail. And I suppose um, uh, my, my experience is around the business world, and as you might imagine, uh, failing is not sort of generally well regarded in, in that uh, sector. Um, but also, you know, you notice the, these days with politicians as well. Um, they seem particularly cautious. They appear very much to stay with what they know. Um, so I suppose the question more generally to the panel, and just sort of throwing it out there as a bit of a thought bubble, is, is how can the arts play a role in, in helping uh, politicians be more brave, be able to maybe see the future, maybe um, to articulate the, a, a vision um, that, that people can, you know, can grab, grab onto and, and help make the changes we need? So, well, so Guy, why don't you have first go at this? I mean, how can how can the arts make people, politicians, be more brave? <laughs> well, interestingly, in the um, in the development of this uh, festival, we've had the experience of uh, people and supporters who have been brave and are brave, and we've also had the experience of those who have ducked for cover. I have to say, um, but who should be brave and hopefully will be brave next time round. I think um, what introducing these issues through the arts can do is provide a, if not a neutral space, a, a separate space from the political or economic discussions that we're used to watching um, occur on our TVs at night or in the newspapers. And when people step into that space, uh, they perhaps let their defences down a bit and are more open to new ideas maybe even creative ideas about how we can um, progress forward. I've certainly had that experience when I was running a gallery of, of people coming in who have all sorts of titles and, and things to defend when they're behind their boardroom desk, but they step into the gallery space and they're really open, they're up for any discussion. Um, we had a really interesting um, in incident of that. Um, on Saturday, one of the exhibitions, the Maldives Exodus Caravan Show, which is currently in, in Federation <coughs> Square, um, and we had a performance artist, or Soren Dalgar, the artist, had arranged for a performance artist to come who engages in climate wrestling. <laughs> and this is not just a, a, a word game. We, we laid out a, a ring and a rink, and uh, he's dressed there as a businessman, and he would have a discussion with anyone who comes along about climate change, and he would, he would uh, debate with you whatever your position was. But this very quickly turned into a physical wrestle. And I sort of thought, oh, gee, I hope a politician walks by <laughs> and we can have a real climate political wrestle. But what was interesting in watching is how people's perspective and their, their relationship with the argument changes very quickly when it becomes personal and physical. And that was a very confronting example of where you place someone in a different situation and different thoughts of necessity have to arise. So I think that the art space provides that possibility. 
David Caroli, how do you encourage bravery amongst uh, politicians on climate change? Um, look, I, I agree with many of the things that, that Guy has said because, in fact, politicians in their comfortable traditional environments will follow their traditional approaches. And, in fact, most people in their comfortable environments will follow their traditional approaches. That's why going to the Arctic provides a very different environment for people to experiment. And I think if we can find comfortable or neutral spaces away from a person's normal environment, they may essentially cast off their traditional roles and potentially be willing to, I guess, engage in broader conversations. Um, it's been tried. It's been very successful in a number of different environments. Whether it could be successful in an Australian environment, I think you have to make sure that you don't have uh, a parliament full of politicians of both flavours, or they will, in fact, retain their traditional approaches. But if you take a broad range of community and this sort of, if you like, broader democracy and groups from a range of, in, you know, I guess, levels in, in, in society in a neutral space can then engage in a much more neutral way. So I think that would be the way that I would say. Take politicians out of parliament, put them amongst a democratic representative group of people and then try to ask them to engage in a neutral space. Put them in the boot room. <laughs> I'm just I've got a, a question. There's a woman in red up about, uh, up about three rows up. Yep. Just while that's happening, uh, you have to understand that actually risk is an essential part of creativity. Mm -hmm. You can't have creativity without risk. So if you want a more creative society, then you've actually got to install much more risking. Uh, thank you very much, Guy, for this amazing organising of this extraordinary events that you've done. Uh, and also to uh, David Brookman for the film. It was, it was a very fascinating film. I think the surprising thing for me was how much humour was in it. So um, that was really quite delightful. Look, two questions and one of them is partly answered, I think. What would you be suggesting that each of us in this room can do when you leave? when we leave here, not just change our light globes and get the train home, but, you know, what else in terms of those politicians? I think the other one is to do with something you mentioned, John, at the very beginning, which was to do with Indigenous peoples. We often, in the past, have looked to elders for solutions to things. In many ways, they are our elders in this country. They've gone through climate changes quite recently, really, including volcanoes exploding in the Western Plains and so on. I'm intrigued, David Brookman, that you went to an uninhabited place, I mean, no Indigenous peoples there, and I'm wondering what might be learnt, you think might be learnt if you went to an Inuit location? Or even, as you might want to talk about, a Pacific Island location as well. But do you want to go take that one first, and then I'll get everyone else to have a go at the, the first question, which is, you know, what should we do when we go home? But... David? Okay, I mean, on the the reason we stopped going, we don't go to the Arctic anymore, exactly. For, well, actually, we just did a big project on Baffin Island with Inuit, which was, was fantastic in Canada, and it was part of a large festival we did last year in Toronto. Um, and exactly for all of those same reasons. The other one we did was we did the west coast of the islands of Scotland, 
and there are island communities there who've deep, completely decarbonized their, their existence. And we should be able to, we went there to, to learn from them and to actually find out how their lives were regulated and how they managed to do that and how they managed to have a really, really fulfilling lives. So that is a lot of our process. And the Pacific Island is exactly the same reason. I mean, this comes from the scientists, actually. You know, the, the kind of things that they're, especially the ocean scientists, you know, they're very interested in ocean acidification, ocean temperatures, sea level rise, destabilized atmospheres. The, the Pacific Islands have got that in, you know, just abundantly. So it's a very good place to do the science, but also it's people who have deep, deep knowledge about living in a very certain kind of way. And actually, maybe we should be looking, well, we should be looking and actually learning from that experience. So hopefully that will count. But we now, the whole of, you know, when I say climate is culture, climate is about the way we live. Human beings live. We're the ones who are totally responsible for it. So therefore, we are the ones who have to engage and, and think differently. Uh, we could, in relation to the first question, you know, what should we do, that could be an hour's discussion from each of you, but just a, a sentence, a, an idea, do you want to, David, perhaps starting from you and walking along to Caroline? Um, sure, well, I mean, there are many, many different things that we can do. We've already sort of talked a little bit about politicians, but probably the biggest influence that you can have is making a choice about where you put your investments, your superannuation scheme, your super funds or your bank, you can make choices and direct those. And if you direct those away from fossil fuel investments, that will have a major impact, not only on increasing the return that you have on those funds, because non-fossil fuel investments are doing better over the last five years and last 10 years than investments that include fossil fuels, but you will also benefit your children and your grandchildren. Guy? Well, I absolutely agree with David. And to make it easy for you, uh, on our website at artclimatechange.org, there's a page which says uh, Take Action. And you'll see listed there a number of organisations who will, in fact, direct you to superannuation companies, uh, banks, uh, power suppliers uh, who do not invest in or use fossil fuels. And as David says, by supporting them, you're having a direct effect. And uh, when you tell your friends and family what you're doing, um, and they do it as well, uh, the multiplier effect comes into, into force. So that's a tip. David? Oh, and then, oh, all right. OK, Caroline. Well, the European experience shows that now there's so much climate action from and talk from all sides of the political uh, board that I think what, as voters, we need to do is to demand climate action from each and every party, and whenever there is an election, just mm. make sure that each candidate has a good answer to that question. Um, mm. That doesn't, that isn't a, I don't think there is a political color attached to climate action. It's something that needs to be done for uh, the planet, for each of us, and it, it shouldn't be the realm of one side of a, of the political. The only problem in Australia is there isn't a colour to political inaction <laughs> either. <laughs> There's a question over here. I think what we are facing at the moment is, is a great crisis in the civilization uh, that we are living in. And it seems to me that um, we are still, what I've witnessed tonight is that we are still talking within this narrative. now. Um, 
I think, uh, you know, one of the people, perhaps in a different context, Freud, for instance, was talking about a death wish of Western civilization. Uh, and I do see that the kind of neoliberalism uh, and market economies that we are engaging in at the moment certainly have this thrust. Now, I'm thinking in terms of uh, art, um, I think art is an extremely important way to bring about uh, a change in consciousness, obviously, and, and other things as well. But it seems to me that at the moment, it's very much confined to a very small uh, minority of people. Uh, I think what we need to do is perhaps look at traditions like surrealism, uh, like constructivism, and so on, which were very revolutionary traditions. And I don't think it's a question of simply um, looking at us, ourselves as individuals. I think we've got to look at systemic changes, and, and they are very big. Uh, and I think maybe this is something that people should be promoting more rather than going along with um, the kind of uh, societal um, trajectory that is basically demanded uh, by the uh, people who are very powerful in our societies. Guy or David, do you, David Buckland, do you want to comment at all on that? I, I couldn't find the question, but um, I'd comment. Mm. I'm, I'm giving a talk tomorrow. I mean, you have to remember that this has been an evolutionary period for us. And what we're doing now, is, I mean, it's a, such a fast-changing landscape in terms of climate. We're having these debates in very, very mainstream kind of corridors. So change is happening, and it's happening fast. And it will continue so. Um, I am convinced, absolutely, and I can prove it, that we have the tools necessary to actually decarbonize our society completely and do it in a very, very short period of time. That will in itself change the way we live. I'm not going to prescribe how we should live because that becomes dictatorial, but we actually, let's just do that part first and then let people sort out how they, they manage it. But we can do it and it needs a positive attitude. And I'm not really, you know, constructivism was again a minority movement of a tiny little group of people. I just want us to actually get positively involved in change and make it happen. I think I've got one more question down here and then we may um, uh, close for the evening. Fiona. Uh, thanks, John. My name's Fiona. More just sort of a, a, a comment and an attempt to sort of um, end on a bit of a positive note and to pick up on, on some lots of the things that you've all been saying really about innovation and um, the things that this clever man here was saying about um, the need for m experimentation and, and being bold. And I guess um, what I see is about the problem of climate change that many people here are engaged in solving is that it is a wicked problem and that it requires action research. And there, we haven't had an opportunity to solve this particular problem before. And in a way, that's tremendously liberating because there are almost no rules about how you go about it. And, and it is... Um, we do have an opportunity to recreate a new future for ourselves. And I think that, you know, that is worth sharing with people, that we do live in a time of incredibly rapid change and we are at a point of huge 
huge disruption globally, and um, we don't quite know where we're heading, but um, it could be tremendously exciting, and we do have the opportunity to really shape that future. Um, so I think that that's, that's a message that we perhaps ought to share with people a little bit more about, you know, we do have the power as a human species to create quite a different society and... Um and we should see that as an exciting opportunity. And the other thing was just going back to the comments about, well, how do we rule for the future? And um, um, just thinking about, I mean, a comment that I've heard recently, it may have even come from you, Guy, but the, the message from, um, or a tradition from Native Ameri Americans about making decisions for seven generations hence. And I think that that's one small thing that we could all do in the conversations that we're having with people, as many of us are, in you know rooms full of people, how do we solve this particular problem? Maybe we should also be asking that question now that we think as ourselves, you know, let's put our ourselves in the shoes of um, seven generations hence and how would we make that decision now? All right. Thank you, Fiona. I think there's a, there's a range of reflections in there. Does anyone want to pick up on any, any aspects of Fiona's points there? Guy? Well, I, I just say, you know, absolutely, this is this provides incredible opportunities, um, and the exciting thing about about working in the arts is that you are engaged in a creative pursuit. You're not exactly sure what you're going to create, um, but you know, in the case of the world and how we live, we're hoping for something better. Um, the arts allows all sorts of people to become involved in that conversation. I think just referencing back the gentleman up there, talking about constructivism and surrealism, etc., and obviously someone who's done a great deal of thought about the deeper implications, economic, etc. But for many people, we are just looking for a way to become involved in the conversation in the first place. And I think that is one of the great advantages of, of these sorts of events. Uh, you know, in a number of interviews I've spoken to people and said, when was the last time you actually had a discussion about climate change? And, and people haven't. So if showing them a picture or a film or a sculpture or a play means that they do start to think and talk about it, well, that, I think, is a very big first step and um, gives rise to all sorts of positive opportunities. Mm. And, David, do you want to... I mean, we're going to wind up in a second, yeah. but is there a reflection you'd like to, to offer in relation to that last point? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lovely little point in the movie. I don't know if it's Siobhan Davis, the choreographer, and she just says, one of the things I'm going to do is to make sure that I talk to ten people. You know, I'm going to just amplify this experience that she's had because she knows that no... I mean, there's very rare, few rare... So it's... it's so in a way, it gets back to what you're saying, and what to get back to Guy saying is, that can we normalise this conversation? This is, you know, the, 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 there are clean tech solutions, there are technical solutions, there are societal solutions, there are mindset solutions. We just want to normalise that debate and actually get optimistic, reframe it away from gloom and doom and say, wait a minute, what a great adventure, what a great excitement. But actually then take Siobhan's part and go, tell 10 people. Mm. And normalise this conversation. And David, you wanted to say something? Sure. I mean, I, I completely agree with what everyone said, and I think it's also important that in, as part of normalising this conversation, we also need to make sure that the messages that are coming from a large fraction of the media, at least in Australia, are also neutralised because the negative messaging about 
both the difficulty of responding to climate change, the lack of opportunity there is, or the difficulty in solving it, are all misinformation. Economists, and we heard um, Ambassador Fabrizi talking earlier, economists have shown that by just sacrificing each year a few days of growth in economy, not sacrificing the whole economy, but just achieving the same growth three days later every year, you'll completely solve climate change for the whole globe in the developed world and in the developing world. That's a tiny slowdown and it means that we can do it with existing capabilities. So those messages are not what you would hear in a certain large fraction of the media in Australia. Mm. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to thank our speakers, but before I do, two other things. Um, firstly, I'd like to point you to the Art Plus Climate Equals Change logo up there. Um, suggest you go and visit the website. Suggest you go and visit the many exhibitions that are on across Melbourne. Um, suggest you have a look at some of the events coming up, which include um, tomorrow night uh, a public lecture by David Buckland and on Wednesday night uh, a public lecture by one of the other visitors visiting uh, guests, um, Bill Fox from the uh, Nevada Museum of Environment and Art. Um, so please have a look at the website, um, go and look at some of the exhibitions, they're terrific. Um, the second thing, second last thing I need to do is to thank um, uh, the sponsors, if you like, the auspices of tonight, which uh, in addition to Climart include ACME, include the, uh, the EU Centre for Shared Complex Challenges um, and my own organisation, the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute. But the last thing I'd like you to do is to thank um, uh, our speakers and particularly David Buckland. So thank you very much. Thank you and good evening. You have been listening to an ACME podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to ACME channel and the ACME website.